to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Reading of the word this morning is taken from Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 34. Chapter 8 can be found on page 944 of the Blue Pew Bible. Romans 8, verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The word of our Lord. Let me kind of introduce the topic this morning in our prayer and in our worship. It's been said that this verse 31 of Romans 8, and I hope that you'll keep your Bibles open to this passage, that this verse is really the heart of the gospel, really the heart of the whole message of Romans. And, and you think that is, that is good news to declare God is for us. Now, people might reject that message and say, I don't believe that he's for us and I don't believe this good news. I don't believe what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And so what we say falls on deaf ears and certainly will not be true that God would be for them if they will not believe him and trust him. But it is the message to to declare to the world because God has come in Christ Jesus, because God has borne the penalty of sin, because God has raised his son from the dead and he has entered into glory. He has restored humanity to its glory and dignity and its dominion over the earth. God is for us. God is for humanity. How can we not say that? He, he became a man. He became a human being. He took, he took the old Adam and put it to death, the old humanity, and he raised us to a new humanity in himself. And we can go from old Adam to new Adam. We can go from, as he puts it in Galatians 4, he has redeemed us from this present evil age, belonging to the old age. Now we belong to the new one in Christ. And what a statement. God is for us. 
And everything that Paul has said in Romans just underscores this. Paul, that God is for us. He is for us. He is for us. He has worked for our redemption in the most amazing way. And so this really is a conclusion from so much that he said. And it's kind of hard to know how far back to go when he says, what should we say to these things? First of all, you go at least back to verse 28. We know for all those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, everything works together for good. Everything is assisting those that God has called because he set his love on them before the foundation of the world. He chose them and predestined them to be his own, to be conformed finally to the image of God. And everyone he predestined, he called and then he justified and he finally glorified. What should we say to these things if God is for us? See how God is for God was forced before the foundation of the world. God was forced in drawing us to himself and keeping us. God is going to be for us in the final day and for eternity. Everything that he does show God shows God is for us. But it goes in some ways it's the conclusion of this whole chapter 8 which is a glorious statement of what God has done for us. Beginning with the first verse, there's now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. That's not a God for us. No condemnation, no judgment, nothing but favor. God is for us. And of course, he goes on to talk about what he's done in Christ in chapter 8. We won't review the whole thing. But then you go to verses 18 through 23, talking about the sufferings of this world, not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And he talks about this future in which the whole of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. God is for us. What shall we say to these things that God is so for us? But then this whole, this chapter is a part of five through eight. And he began with chapter five. Now we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God and we've obtained access into this grace, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And the whole of 5, 6, and 7, and 8 is about the great hope that we have in Him to live out this life and finally issue in the glory that we will have. But then it goes back even to chapter 3 when He begins to say, In the face of human sin, look what God has done in Christ Jesus. Uh, making Him bear, uh, giving Him up to bear the wrath of of God. And it, this is God bearing wrath for us and saving us. So these things really stretch all the way back to all of Romans. What should we say of all of these things that God has done for us? And when he says, and we're just going to kind of follow through this passage, no real outline as much as just, just following his argument because he just keeps building it and building it. And I don't want to mess it up by, you know, artificial little, here's my three points this morning. Uh, so it's just hopefully what I say on each of these texts can, can ring in your, your hearts and heads for some time. But uh, this statement, if God is for us, who can be against us, is, is very much a Jewish statement. And, and we, we need to see the background here. These are the kind of things that were always said about the Jews and the people of God. 
And so Paul is underscoring the fact, and this leads into the whole question, nine chapters 9 through 11, about what about the people of God? What about those physical Jews? Because with your language here, Paul, you're saying God is for us. Like, we're the ones he's for, the ones who have the Spirit, the ones who, who belong to Messiah. And so he's using Jewish language here in which God again and again speaks of his chosen people in the Old Testament and how he will deliver them and he will, they will inherit the earth. And so that's the kind of language God is for us. And it also speaks of monotheism. It's not just a God is for us, but there are a lot of other gods out there that aren't for us, right? That's polytheism. That's Greek gods and, and animism and all these things. Yeah, you may have your private little God that kind of rules your little area, but there's a lot of other beings out there that are powerful too. Who knows who's the strongest? No, there's one God. There are no other gods. He made everything. He controls everything. He is for you. And he doesn't even say... Who is who can be against us? No one. It's just understood. Who can be against us? Nothing. It'd be like, and this is still not even close to the contrast, but here's an army of 500,000 armed uh, uh, soldiers with heavy artillery, with uh, air support, uh, with... Uh, you know, mechanized uh, tank, everything that they need, just an uh, incredible force. And so he's looking out. Uh, he, he's sent out, uh, you know, detachment to find out what the enemy is. And he comes back and he says, sir, we found him. Yeah, well, what is it? It's not just one, but five kittens. Look to be about four weeks old. Five. Whoa. Thought it would just be one, five. Yeah, and they look, they look frisky too, those uh, kids. You know, it's like there's nothing out there. There's absolutely nothing out there. And that's the point here. There is nothing, nothing against us. There's not one thing. Yeah, purported, the effort, but to really be against us, to really accomplish anything important against us, to keep us from any of the things that God intends to do, to cause us to be formed into the image of Christ and finally be resurrected, nothing is against us. For this simple reason, God is for us. End of story, end of the discussion. There's no argument. There's nothing. Because God is for us. And... That's the flavor of Paul. It's so funny as they're in Corinth arguing over who's the best preacher, okay? And some like Apollos because he's fiery and he's eloquent. Some like Paul because he's so studied and wise, you know, and they don't like this flamboyant, handsome guy. They like the kind of, you know, uglier guy that doesn't threaten them as much, kind of like me, you know, that wouldn't threaten you. Uh, others like Cephas, he's, he's a doer, you know. I like a pastor who gets out there and does something. Peter takes it by the horns and just goes. Yeah, he makes a mistake, but he's out there trying. He's in the arena, you know. So they're all arguing. Who, who's got the best, which is the best pastor? And at the end of his three, first three chapters, he gets to this point and he says, So in the end here, let no one boast in men. Why? 
Why are you picking one of these guys? He says, all things are yours. Idiots, you know, you almost feel it. Dummy, all things are yours. Paul or Paulus or Cephas, that's just peanuts. The world is yours. Life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. And you're arguing over which pastor you have. He's just, he's just showing the ridiculousness of it. But it's the same feel, the same under, uh, structural understanding of what the world is like. God is for you. Don't you realize that life and death and the future and the world, they're all yours too? Because everything serves you. Everything is on your side. Even those things that try to be against you. Even those things that would put you to death or persecute you. Or imprison you. As he lists all the terrible things in verses 35 and following. He's not talking a Pollyanna life here. He knows the, the, the serious, deadly life that they're living. And in the midst of it, he can say, all things are yours. All things are yours. There's nothing against you. And at first you say, nothing against me. You know, it would be like a, a guy that's just been hit by three linebackers at once and the rest of the team piled on and then he tells you, there's nothing against you. Well, you could tell me something else because I felt that, okay? I'm getting hit out here. I'm getting knocked around out here. There's a lot against me. But you see his point that whatever is against you and whatever hurts you and whatever attacks you and whatever happens to you, Ultimately, it must serve you. It must, in the words of Romans 8, 28, assist you. All things assist you to the purpose God has for you. His purpose trumps all other purposes. All other purposes. They must serve His purpose. And so, if God is for us, who, who can be against us? There is no against. That's the way John Murray put it. There is no against whatsoever. And that's how you and I, at our best, can see the world and every event that happens to us. There's no against me. There's no against me here in this difficulty. It's only for the purpose of my good. Only. You you see the world that way, you'll walk as a free person. Be, if we did it perfectly, we'd be perfect because we trust him perfectly. But see, that's the essence of faith is believing in the love of God revealed in Christ and that, that love in Christ dictating what we think about God. And that's why Paul immediately would go to the cross in verse 32. Okay? If God is for us. So what can he pick? What can he say that will more than anything else, declare that God is for us and convince us that God is for us. And he goes to the cross of Christ. He goes to his own, his own giving of his son, God in the flesh, bearing our punishment, bearing wrath against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And here's Paul's holy logic. How will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. So if he didn't hold back his son, the point is, he's not going to hold back anything. And the word graciously give, is that's a good translation because it's from the word charis. It's a verb form of that. Charis, a grace. Okay, 
Um, and it's the verb form, so he's almost literally, he's going to grace us with all things. We don't deserve it. Like we didn't deserve Christ. But he gave Christ. He didn't hold him back. He, he, he gave him up, delivered him up for us. Well, then he'll give us anything, won't he? He won't stop at anything, would he? He would never withhold anything. And isn't that what we tend to think? He's holding out on me. He's, he's holding something back that if I had this, if I had another thing, another thing, another thing, I'd be happy. And we tend to think, gosh, God, why don't you give me, why won't you, over and over again, our unbelief. Why won't he do this for me? Why won't he give me this set of things? We feel deprived. And we need to come again and again to this text and say, wait a minute, what am I thinking? He didn't deprive me of his own son. If he's going to keep something back, he would have kept his son, but he didn't. He didn't spare his son. And as many people have pointed out, the very word, well, some of you may not know the story, but uh, with Abraham in Genesis 22, God told him a very shocking thing that he should sacrifice his son. Now, this is a son that he had waited for years and years and years to have, had a promise that he would have a son, but he, didn't, he and his wife couldn't have children. Then they got so old, 100 years old, 90 years old, pretty old to be having a baby, um, got that old, and so hope is all gone. But they're believing his promise. They're trusting him that he's going to bring this about. So finally, Isaac is born. They name him Isaac Laughter because she was laughing at one point. <laughs> yeah, right, I'm going to have a baby. You know, which you would, of course, at that point. But here's Isaac, finally born after such agony and waiting. And then God says, I want you to sacrifice him. And we're told in Hebrews that Abram believed God, even believed that he could raise him from the dead. Because he believed, no, whatever happens here, God's going to preserve his life because all the promises fall on Isaac and he's the child of promise. So he believed God, but he went to sacrifice him. He went up to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and, and it says he took the knife in the hand when the angel stopped him. And Rembrandt and others have vivid uh, pictures, uh, paintings of this event, sometimes with the, the, the angel grabbing the hand and the knife and Rembrandt's just falling, you know, because he had it in hand and it's falling because the angel has him. And then you see in the thicket, uh, even in the painting, there's the ram that's going to take the place of Isaac. So he, he supplies this ram and says, uh, you do not have to sacrifice your son. I give you this ram. But this is what he says. Now I see that you did not spare your son. It's the same, translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, it's the same word used right here. Unmistakable commentators say that he's got that image in the back of his mind. Now, here's the interesting thing. For the, for the Jews, just like we would do, like we do, they knew themselves to be the elect people of God, the chosen ones, the favored ones, that they had God's mercy. So these words flutter around their language a lot. But it's how they abused that. It's how they used it to begin to think we're really better fundamentally than other people. 
And we don't sin like other people. We don't even have to worry about our sin like other people that are condemned because we have the favor of God. And they would use it to have terrible attitudes and hatred and and heart wickedness and evil against God, all the while being the favored ones. Now, when Paul in, in Romans 4 is giving the example of Abraham... No doubt, and of course you have to remember when he uh, proclaimed these kind of things in the synagogues, he's always playing off the Jewish people that are listening and how to bring this gospel to them. What's fascinating is that in Romans 4, where one would expect that Paul might have talked about his faithfulness, Abraham's faithfulness, he only talked about how Abraham trusted God for a child and how Abraham helplessly rested in God because he wanted to underscore faith and he wanted to challenge them to think, are you helplessly trusting in God's mercy like Abraham? So that he wouldn't say that you're the fulfillment, you devout Jews, you're just like faithful Abraham. Yes, you're faithful. You don't need to worry about this message of salvation. No, he didn't. He said, you must hear this out. This message, you need to trust as Abraham did. And he saves, he saves Abraham's faithfulness to say, I'll tell you who's the type of Abraham, who's the fulfillment of that. It's God. It's God. He did not spare his son. He did not spare his son. And there was no ram to take its place. This was the lamb. This was the ram. This was the one who would stand in our place. So this is a a magnificent statement of God's faithfulness. This is a magnificent statement of what he says at the beginning of this this, uh, epistle where he says, the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. The revelation of the covenant faithfulness of God. The powerful saving work of God that justifies and sanctifies and calls and glorifies us. Here it is, this faithful God didn't spare his son. But he delivered him up for us all. And Dunn calls this the neat turning of the tables where he holds forth God as the faithful one like Abraham. Then, if you back up to Romans chapter 1, this is stunning again because in Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about the judgment of God on man's sin. Verse 18, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and and. He talks about how we human beings have rejected God even though He made Himself known. We didn't honor Him. We didn't thank Him. And then three times, 24, 26, and 28, God gave them up to impurity. 26, He gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, He gave them up to a debased mind. He delivered them over. Paradidomi is the, is the verb. And it's a statement of judgment, of judgment, of judgment on mankind. And now he says in Romans chapter 8, he gave up his own son. The same word. God gave us up in wrath, but he gave his son up to wrath 
He bore the wrath Himself in His Son. God made flesh so that we might have all things. And so it's an amazing turnaround that this God who we deserve this judgment of being delivered over to sin, delivered over to wrath, but He's delivered over His Son. Delivered over His Son. So He didn't spare Him. He he delivered Him up. How will He not with Him freely give us all things? And the all things certainly includes the things of salvation. Certainly includes the all things that will assist us toward becoming conformed to the image of Christ. So that everything in some way is a servant to assist me, to build me, to shape me into the image of Christ. And finally bring me to that point where I will be resurrected and become exactly like Christ in the resurrection. Everything must serve that purpose. And so certainly it means all things. But the all things usually has to do with all of creation. Uh, Like in Ephesians 1 where it says that uh, Christ is uh, head over all things for the church. For the sake of the church, he's head over all of creation. And he says... uh, Later, earlier in verse 10, that Christ will is the summary, or in Christ all things will be summarized. Well, that means all of creation will find its summation. It's brought, being brought together in Christ. Or Philippians 3 where it says, in talking about how He's going to change our bodies from our humble state to glorious state, He says he, but He'll do that by the power that He has to subject all things to Himself. Again, all things, the widest range of creation. Or Colossians 1.20, He reconciled all things to Himself. And that's as wide as creation. And so, this saying that He will freely give us all things has this final element involved in it. This is the reversal or, or the final fulfillment that He has put uh, man in dominion of all over all things. This is a statement that finally He will give us all of creation. We participate in Christ's reign. We participate in Christ's rule even now. And, and we will completely participate in, it, in that final day in the revelation of the children of God. And so there's no limit to this. He'll freely give you all things sustaining you in this life so that all things will work to conform you to Christ. He will withhold nothing. He will deprive you of nothing that is, that is good for you. He's always, no matter how deprived it seems, you are getting all things, all times from Him. And in the end, you will receive all things in Christ. All things in creation have been given over to us. It is our inheritance. And the amazing thing is that he has put him there at the right hand of God. And it says in Ephesians 2 that we have been raised with him and seated him with him there in the heavenlies. And so you can, one has said that Jesus Christ is God's commitment. You want to know God's commitment to you, just read, say the name Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the measure of his commitment to me. Not any circumstance, not any event, not anything that could happen to me. Christ is the measure. And we need to think not just that, well, I'm not getting as bad as I could have 
it could be worse. I think of somebody else that has it worse. So that's good. At least it's not that bad. That's not the tone of this. You know, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So, you know, not the worst thing may happen to you, you know. No, graciously, graciously give you all things. And so you're to think, and I'm to think every day, whatever set of circumstances, the essence is, he's graciously giving me all things. All things that I need to grow in grace. All things to form me like Christ. He's never, ever withholding those things. He's never depriving me because he has given me Christ. And so, in these who's uh, that he continues with in verses 33 and 34, it's like a defiant word he's just hurling out into creation, you know, hurling out into space, John Stott would say, as though he's just challenging all comers, all the angelic hosts, all the demons, everything. Who is against us? Who wants to bring a charge against God's elect? Who is going to condemn? You know, of course, there's no answer. There's nobody to take up the challenge. And I love the way he puts it. This, this could be the way a challenger would say, Who shall bring any charge against, I will, God's elect or chosen ones. And then you want to say, Ooh, I wish I hadn't said that. You know, oh, excuse me. Wow. Okay, sorry. You see, who will bring a charge against who? God's chosen ones? The ones God set his love on? You're going to be in charge against his chosen ones? I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be on that side of things. Who's going to bring a charge against? Even before he's, he's starting to say what God has done, he calls them God's chosen. That gives you the whole piece of what he's just said. These are the ones foreloved, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Who's going to bring a charge against those? God is the one who justifies. That's why verse 1, there's no condemnation. God is the one who absolutely, sovereignly says, you are not guilty. There is no charge. There is no condemnation, which means only favor is upon your head because of what my son has accomplished for you. Only favor. You are made righteous in him. You're regarded as being joined to him. You have his righteousness covering you. And therefore, you have only favor. So who's going to bring a charge? Who's going to condemn? Who's going to stand and say, no, God, I don't think so. <laughs> who's going to say to God, I think that you should or, or somebody should. No, it's done. It's done. It's over. God has declared it. And the idea, this is the heavenly court. And in Jewish thought, uh, the idea was that, our angels and archangels would either accuse or sometimes stand up for us that there's this heavenly court going on all the time that finally issues in the last court, the last judgment. And so this is a, a last judgment and even a present court scene, and there's nobody even there for the prosecution. Nobody. There's only one judge, and there's one uh, person, and there's one at his right hand, and what is he doing? He's interceding. And so, this is Christ again he brings forth. It is Christ who died. And the way he puts it, more than that, who was raised, he's making the point, he, he died. But, but 
not just died, but he was raised to show how valuable that death was, to show that it completely paid for sin, to show that he completely bore the wrath of God. Therefore, he's raised and can offer that forgiveness to anyone powerfully as the resurrected one. He has life. So he he died, he was raised, he's at the right hand of God, echoing Psalm 110, that I will uh, put you at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. One of the most favorite texts is Psalm 110, verse 1. That one, of Jesus at the right hand of God, the Messiah at the right hand. And he's interceding. He, he, just his presence is an intercession. The presentation of the finished work. The presentation of his accomplishment. And interceding in a personal way, careful way. Always arguing for pleading with a father who loves to hear his son and answers his son for all good to fall upon us based upon what he has accomplished for us, which God sent him to do in the first place. And you see, Jesus is at the right hand of God. He represents us by his very presence. You imagine a voice raised against us and, and God says, you know, I sometimes talk about this when somebody's sitting next to me and say, I don't know, but somebody in the room, you know, that kind of little. And here's God saying, you're going to dare to open your mouth when he represents all of my people and he's in my presence and they are in my presence in him and they're beloved at my right hand in him. Are you going to dare open your mouth against him? There are no accusations. There are no accusations. Because Jesus is at the right hand interceding for us. Well, just a couple of things to close. In the midst of what circumstance says otherwise, you define and measure his love for you by what he's done for you in Christ and who Christ is. That's just got to be your whole horizon, your whole landscape. It's it's Christ. All these other things, little piddling ants, little pebbles here and there on the landscape. The huge mountain, the glorious forest, the streaming river, the waterfall, the, the glory that you just gaze at in every day is Christ. Christ is mine. Nothing can change that Christ is mine. Nothing Nothing separates us from that love. I love how my wife put it. She said, you know, nothing could ever be as bad as it was when we didn't know Christ. Nothing. Cut off from the life of God, under condemnation and judgment, under God's wrath, destined for that judgment, cut off from loving God, Cut off from truly being a part of the people of God. Not having experienced the love of Christ. Nothing would ever come close. I don't care what happens to me or you. Nothing is worse than that. And on the other hand, you could say, nothing could ever be better than what our situation is, could it? Nothing. 
that, that all this is true, that, that God is for us in Christ Jesus, that he, is, he, he died and raises at the right hand, that, that we're part of this plan that began before the foundation of the world and will end in our glory, and everything is our servant, and He freely gives us, graciously gives us all things. Nothing could be better than this. <laughs> so nothing could get any worse than it was. And in that sense, nothing could ever get any better than it is. Now, I don't mean that things won't get better, you know, in the sense of growing in Christ and growing in our understanding of Christ and certainly at the resurrection, all of that. But you get the point that nothing can touch you. Nothing can touch you. You're His, and He loves His own, and He's demonstrated it in that He's not even spared His own Son. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, oh, gracious, gracious God, enable us to see because we are weak. And I know, Lord, that I can hear all of this and I can study it this week and I can preach about it and I can still ignore it and I can still be unmoved by it. I can still live my life the same way. I can still not grow in faith. Oh, save me, Lord, from that. Save us all, Lord, from ignoring this majestic revelation that God is for us. May the reality of that, the blessedness of it, the shalom, the wholeness of it, may it help put us back together as human beings. May it piece us back together and all the difficulties we've had in our lives, the many times abusive situations that we faced even as children or terrible losses that we faced as adults, may, may we be put back together by a firm, joyous, confident faith that God is for me in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we not let the enemy... Destroy this. May we not be led into the evil of unbelief, the destructiveness of unbelief. No, Lord. May we be exhibit A, each one of us, of the glory of one who trusts in the goodness of God no matter what. May we walk in that freedom. May we walk in the freedom of, of, of the children of God Oh, bless us, Lord. Help us, sustain us. We rest in you to do it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night.
chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?